HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Meat and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meat and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chefs' grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really, she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant and Ed and Bev's Restaurants in Brooklyn. If it's your first time tuning into the program, this is basically how The Line works. I have one guest come on, and we talk one-on-one about the trajectory of their career, starting in their childhood, working through their earliest jobs in food if they went to culinary school, and then talking about their current projects, and even what they have going on in the future if they have things that are soon to be open. Uh, So let's get into it. Season seven, first episode of uh, the fall season. Thanks for joining us. King Restaurant opened uh, September 2016 in Soho, New York, led by Jess Shadbolt, Claire DeBoer, and Annie Shee. Two co-chefs and one sommelier partnered up to serve seasonal, simple food with influences from France and Italy in a relaxed setting. The restaurant serves a daily changing menu featuring dishes such as rabbit and sage salt and boca with speck, poached ox tongue with fingerlings, celery hearts, and tarragon vinaigrette, and a wild halibut with grilled asparagus and marinated anchovy. The restaurant received two stars from Pete Wells at the New York Times, as well as being named a 2017 Top Restaurant of the Year by the New York Times. And in 2018, both chefs were named as part of the Best New Chef class by Food & Wine magazine. My guest today is Jess Shadbolt, half of the King Chef team. We'll be discussing growing up overseas, cooking in London, and what it is like to open a restaurant in New York City. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the way beginning, as we often do on the program. Uh, tell the listeners where you were born and, uh, and also uh, a little bit about your family, your, your parents, and if you have any siblings. So um, I was born in London um, and grew up um, just outside in Essex. Um, It's about 20 miles from London. Um, We grew up in the country, in the middle of nowhere, in a field, in fact, um, where my mother was uh, a stay-at-home mum and uh, was raising us kids. So I've got an older sister 
um, and a younger brother. So I'm in the middle. Um, and yeah, my father owns a family business that's been going for 250 years. Um, so he was doing that. But we grew up um, in a very kind of kind of relaxed, happy um, countryside existence, which was very, you know, very fortunate for us. What's the family business, and uh, <laughs> is it based in London or? Uh, it's a bit outside of London. Yeah, it's not particularly glamorous. It's um, uh, veneered panels and fire doors. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> oh, got a cough today. Um, so yeah, so he and my great great grandfather started it, and now actually my sister has just entered the business. So she is the fourth generation, which is lovely to see. So you didn't obviously go into <laughs> the business, but it still continues to this day, which is pretty cool. Uh, I know that uh, your grandfather had a garden and he did a lot of uh, growing as well as cooking. So it seems like being out in the country and being, you know, in nature all the time, uh, how did that kind of contribute to what meals were like growing up, uh, as well as uh, sort of fostering your initial connection with food? I think meals growing up for me were very, they were always sort of the most important part of the day. Um, we'd always gather around a table, particularly in the evenings. We, we, we shared a family meal um, uh, every evening. And I think they were always very much a celebration. It was an opportunity to talk, to discuss the day, to um, make plans for the future, for the weekend. So they were very important to us, based also on the fact that, you know, my mum was at home um, and she's an amazing cook. She's very much part of the reason why I probably cooked today um and you know afternoons at home were sort of spent um, making bread and making jams and um you know uh growing things we, we we weren't particularly good at it but we gave it a good shot some of the time um we left that majority of the the green finger like nature to my grandfather so but you know it was very much part of um a culmination of the day sitting around a meal and and um yeah talking it was a celebration it does sound like a really magical yeah. kind of beautiful <laughs> well, existence uh Curious if from the start you thought, oh, this food thing might be uh, a pursuit of mine, or when you were, you know, in middle school, high school, um, before you decided to make the jump to go to culinary school, was it always something that was in your head? I think it was always in my head and the fact that I always knew I wanted to cook. I remember when I got to an age where I was allowed to stay at home on my own, um, I always baked um, and I would always sort of pull out a recipe book from my mum's cupboard and sort of flick through and see what I wanted to, to, to make that day. Often it was flapjacks. I went through a real flapjack stage. Um, and so I always knew that it was going to be part of my, who, I, who I wanted to be. And as I grew up, that kind of grew, um, particularly as I sort of, you know, got older um, and moved to London, you know, those dinner parties became really um, integral to my week. I was always the one to kind of get people around and wanted to to kind of spend two days prepping and cooking and thinking about what I wanted to serve and who I wanted to be around that table. So it was always very much sort of in, 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 in me, but I never really considered it to be a job. And it only came to me much later than most, I think. Um, I had a kind of plethora of other careers, prior to entering a kitchen so um it was always in the back of my mind but I just I, I to be honest I never really thought it was an option um it was just always a, a love of mine and I didn't really consider a career in a professional sense did you pursue other careers before you ended up going to culinary school like yes. did you have a quote-unquote normal job I did was, you sit at a I desk normal, or something yeah I was a normal civilian <laughs> I, I went to university in the north of um in the north of England in Newcastle and I studied English literature there um really for self-indulgence and the fact that I love reading and I didn't really know at that point what I wanted to do I kind of had uh, and I wanted to write maybe um and I kind of loved the, the whole process of writing so I kind of went to uni with a kind of romantic sense that maybe that's what I'd do and when I left I obviously uh, still didn't know what I wanted to do so I ended up actually in a marketing um, agency um, which I love because it was an extremely creative environment um, and I kind of got involved a little bit with the copywriting at that point and then I moved from there and ended up in PR um, at L'Oreal um, as you do. And uh, I worked there for two years and I was working on a sort of a hair care brand and loved writing the press releases and you know, I love people. So I kind of enjoyed, you know, um, that human interaction and the relationships needed to kind of build 
that, that kind of brand. Um, and so that's where I was. And then after L'Oreal, <clears throat> there was a job available at the River Cafe to be the um, assistant to Rose and Ruth, who are the, uh, who are the owners um, and the head chefs there. And I loved the idea of kind of making that transition into the food world. Um, it was a job that involved um, a bit of PR. They were working on their, their last cookbook, um, Classic Italian, and so I was going to be involved in helping on that side a little bit. So it sort of bridged the gap between these two worlds, which I was so kind of enamored by. So it was, it was, that was the sort of transition were you throwing dinner parties at the time that you were working for L'Oreal and, and writing copy? So was it like yes. you went to, to your normal job, go to the market, prep, and then were you throwing dinner parties privately for friends or were you charging tickets? How was I mean, that working? Sometimes I felt like we should start charging, but um, no, it was mainly just pure social indulgence. Um, I think, you know, weekends were definitely spent at the market. You know, I'd trek to Borough Market. I'd always go on the... Um, on the on the boat um and um it was just yeah I, I we weren't charging actually my um housemate and I almost started a company a catering company and it was going to be called two birds and one stove which we thought was hilarious at the time um and so although it, it, it that actually never got off the ground to be fair um but it was just very much us um cooking and um you know and we at that point I had some friends who were chefs um, and I was always coercing them to arrive early to teach me how to, I don't know, um, debone a leg of lamb or to make fresh pasta. And um, one of the chefs, I'm still very good friends with him now, I still think of those early days in my kitchen and him basically teaching me how to cook. They were the very formative stages of my career. Well played. So you started a dinner party for your friends and then you got free cooking lessons yes. out of it. And You've got to get something out of it. Then you fed everyone. <laughs> I still think you should maybe trademark that catering company. Right. Name. It's pretty clever. It is so I think good. that it could have legs here in, in the United States for sure. So the dinner parties transitioned you into working at the River Cafe, but you weren't cooking on the line you were uh, you were behind the scenes so you were uh working closely with the chefs utilizing your pr skills how did you then end up at is it pronounced bally maloo oh yeah bally maloo um well i had sort of so i've been working with ruth and rose um as you say in the sort of in the office of the river cafe and had been totally captured by restaurant life um i love the ebb and flow of of how the restaurant works you know from arriving being the first to arrive and the window cleaner being there and it being silent and um and then going into the office and seeing and seeing the restaurant kind of come to life as the pastry team arrived and then later on the cooks and so i i was just knew that i'd fallen in love with 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 restaurants um and i had done that job for about five years and, it, and i and i absolutely loved it and i loved um working with Ruthie and and everyone else there but I kind of reached that point where um I needed to sort of try something else and itch a scratch I guess and actually Ballymaloo was um the one cooking school that I wanted to do when I left university but I sort of financially couldn't do it at that point and it just came to a natural point in my career there where I sort of said to Ruthie hey any chance I could have three months off I will be back but I just need to go and do this and she's obviously very supportive and said yeah of course and what do you want to do and I said oh I want to go to a cooking school and she said where and I said oh it's you know it's on this farm in, in Cork in Southern Ireland and she was like why don't you go to New York? Like, don't go to a farm. And I was like, no, I really want to go and live that life. So um, she went, uh, I went, sorry, um, and was there for, for three months, uh, sort of learning under Darina Allen, who's this amazing force. So the, the style of culinary school that it was, did it slightly mirror your, your upbringing in the sense that it had uh, like direct interaction with the farm. For a lot of people that go to culinary school, especially in New York, you're really in a classroom or you're in a very high-tech kitchen. Obviously in New York, there's not a direct farm out your back door. Uh, in Hyde Park, obviously, further upstate, you're a little more out in, in the fields. But for you, uh, you decided to go to sort of rural Ireland for culinary school. Uh, what was that like? Well, I, I think, first of all, I kind of didn't go there with the thought that I'd come out of it a chef. Mm -hmm. um, so I really went there for an opportunity to have three months to learn and indulge myself. So I think had I've chosen, well, to be fair, actually, I don't think I would have done. But if I wanted to 
become a kind of a trained chef. Perhaps I wouldn't have chosen, you know, Bally Malou. Um, but what I wanted to do was sort of exist in this sort of picturesque landscape. And what drew me to the course was this opportunity of really understanding um, the interaction between, you know, um, the, the the land and the kitchen and, and how that exchange occurs. You know, the first recipe you learn at Ballymaloo is for compost. Um, and Doreen very much of the belief that, you know, to be able to cook well, you need to understand good produce. And if you need to understand good produce, you need to understand where that comes from. Um, and so, you know, the cookery school is based on this farm. Um, you know, each morning you are scheduled to go into the greenhouses and pick the um, the lettuces and the herbs uh, and, and other produce and you bring it back to the kitchen and, and you make a stock and one morning you might be milking the cows to make cheese. Um, so you not only are you being trained and being taught how to cook, you know, there's a very solid uh, grounding in, in having an understanding of, of where this is all coming from. So um, and it did mirror the way I have always learned to cook and, and like to cook whether it be from being in the countryside or I mean, we've got a house by the sea in England and we'd go and crab there and bring the crabs home. And, and, and you know, so that was very much in my instinct and the way that I like to see good food. I love that approach that it's first and foremost about respect for the product. And then once you know how to interact with the product, then you can manipulate it and cook it if you want. But first you have to see the product firsthand mm. that's uh that's like a really fundamental strategy to understanding food that might be lost on a lot of people today uh bally malu also gave you another gift which was claire went there as well and she did. although you didn't necessarily connect there you both you both went there and then you were at the river cafe together yeah uh, so were you not at culinary school at the same time? No, I think I went um, almost the term before her. Okay, um, so you you almost met and then almost and then connected at the River Cafe true love as story. Yeah, yeah. as fate would as fate would have it. And did you befriend each other in the kitchen at that point on the line, or were yeah. you still doing a little foot in foot out? No, no, no. By that point, so um, as I was leaving Ballymaloo, I got a phone call from Ruthie, and um, she sort of said, "Why didn't you come back as a chef?" and not my PA anymore. I should make a note that really, at that point, my sister was filling in for me at the River Cafe doing my job, and I have a sneaky feeling that she was doing a better job at it than she I was. She stole your job. She stole it, and Ruthie was just probably thinking, gosh, I've got to get Jess that, but Ali's doing <laughs> a better job. Where will I put Jess? All right, yeah. I'll have her chop things in the yeah. kitchen. So that's how it came back, and you obviously can't say no to Ruthie. So um, I ended up in the kitchen, and, and, and this opportunity to work in that kitchen, which I adored so much, was... You know, I wouldn't. I ran with it with both arms. So um, I went back to the River Cafe from Ballymaloo and ended up in the kitchen. And a few months later, Claire followed. And obviously, we um, had a lot in common. Not only in our passion for this type of food, um, but we shared very similar experiences, sort of growing up in the way that we were introduced to good food and and eating and cooking. Um, and obviously then the Ballymaloo element, um, we both came back sort of full of adoration and huge respect for Darina and, and Rory and, and Rachel and everyone there who had sort of instilled this passion in us. So we'd spend hours, we'd actually sometimes share a chopping board um, and sort of sit there and chat. And we were sort of the greediest too. Um, couldn't resist trying everything and sort of being captivated by this incredible produce that we were we were lucky enough to be working with. Um, so yeah, we, we, we instantly connected and um, were both very much aligned in, in what we wanted. For those listening that aren't, aren't familiar and haven't had the pleasure of visiting, River Cafe, world famous, but can you give a little quick 30-second pitch on sort of the ethos behind the River Cafe and what makes it such a special restaurant in the grand scheme of things, not only in London, but also in the world and how it's influenced so many, many chefs that have... have come after yeah the river cafe um was uh it's been open now for 30 years um and it was opened by two women uh ruth rogers and rose gray both who came to cooking sort of later on in their lives and weren't um professionally trained necessarily either and they both shared a vision of wanting to bring like true regional italian food to london i think at the time london was just experiencing sort of um very sort of american style um uh italian food sort of you know tomato sauces and spaghetti getting meatballs and and what they wanted to do is sort of bring the cooking that they 
had experience there um, in people's homes to um, to the London scene. And so they um, were real trailblazers in the fact that they, they write their menus daily as well. They use finest, um, incredibly wonderful seasonal produce um and what they um really want to do is bring the sort of simplicity um onto a plate but really allowing sort of ingredients to, to shine through um so they were they were you know they were they practically practically wasn't parmesan in london at that point you know and they were very much sort of the first to sort of bring that style of cooking to to the scene um and have you know they are the mothership and they have born amazing chefs all across the world who've gone on to really understand appreciate and want to bring that kind of value to to their own restaurants and it's also fair to say that 30 years ago london was not really well known for cuisine it wasn't a major food destination from a tourism standpoint and they have kind of led the charge in reshaping what cuisine could be like in london for locals and and tourists alike and now it has become sort of a a Mecca, a world-famous destination that people go way out of their way to visit. And it's so timeless. I was there not re- uh, not long ago, and I think, you know, the, obviously the space is absolutely beautiful. Uh, Ruthie's husband is Lord Rogers. He's the um, amazing architect. Um, and so the space is so, like, elegant, and, um, you know, it, it's really, it's timeless, that restaurant. It's really fabulous. Do you have any good or bad first memories of what it was like to be there during a service when to be so intimately involved in a restaurant you spent so many days there you probably knew every nook and cranny of the place and then tickets start coming in what's the feeling like to be in a place that you know so well but in a totally different way I think it was a massive trans transition and the dynamic really was difficult at first I was sort of working and friends with people in it with with a slight distance between us because obviously I was in the office and um they were in the kitchen and then suddenly these chefs were becoming my bosses in in a moment and so there was definitely a few bumps in the road and even with Ruthie uh, she always says that she felt like we were kind of conducting an illicit affair because I never spoke to her in the kitchen because I was sort of really wanted to establish these new boundaries um but it was very it, it was extremely frightening and daunting but I was massively supported by everyone I couldn't have been welcomed more into that kitchen um but you know it was and and, and I, there were massive massive errors left right and center uh all the all the time that, that everyone was very good at kind of helping me figure out but I was also fortunate in the fact that I'd spent so much time there and I knew what the food looked like when it should be coming off the grill I tasted the pasta many many times I saw the chefs each morning break down legs of lamb I would talk to them as they were making a soup and so I'd sort of been very lucky in the fact that I'd had a great introduction to it um if if a little bit further away than most at the beginning We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss more about how you decided, along with your partners, to move to New York and open up King Restaurant. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com.
Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Jess Shadbolt. She is one of the co-chefs and co-owners of King Restaurant located in Soho here in New York City. She was just named one of the best new chefs by Food and Wine Magazine in 2018. And in 2017, Pete Wells awarded King Restaurant two stars and also chose it as one of the top restaurants of the year. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about River Cafe, and there you met your soon-to-be business partner, well, one of them, along um, with Annie Shi And the three of you are partners in King Restaurant. Can you walk me through the process, let the listeners know, how did you conceptualize King, and why did you decide to open it in New York as opposed to London or any other city, how did you decide on, on making the jump here and, uh, and starting the project? So um, at the time that Claire and I met at the River Cafe, she'd also been introduced to Annie, our partner, who was um, in London working at the time. Um, and they were sent on a friend date um, and sort of both as well, like connected and fell in love over their love of food and restaurants. And, um, and so they kind of decided that for various reasons that they were going to move back to London. Um, Annie is a New Yorker um, and Claire had ties back to, to New York anyway. So she was due to leave the River Cafe and return back to London, uh, to New York, I'm sorry. Um, and Annie was heading back too. And at that point, they had sort of started to think about opening something um, together. So they kind of hit New York soil with this sort of grand plan of creating something and started the long process of you know thinking about investment and sort of location and what that might even look like um and that was sort of around the september time and in november claire returned to london and, and she and i shared um i would say a glass but it was more than that it was sort of various amounts of, of wine um and she was sort of talking about what they had been thinking and was was it something that maybe i would like to be involved with um and I'd been thinking myself at that point what was next a couple of projects that I was considering in London I sort of didn't come through so um I sort of jumped to the chance not only because um of our shared understanding obviously Annie had a very good um kind of understanding of, of, of what she wanted to create too and so we were all aligned on this sort of desire to open a restaurant um and you know New York because uh, obviously, like geographically, that's where they were at the time. But I think that we very much felt that it was a city that would embrace um, something like King and what we wanted to create. Um, and, you know, people are very open and, and willing to support um, new beginnings. And so I think that that was probably behind the, the decision as well. One of the most difficult aspects of opening up a restaurant anywhere is obtaining the financing convincing people that the restaurant is going to be better, different, uh, something unique, adding something to the mix. Uh, what was the process like of convincing either friends and family or, or uh, a stranger that you become uh, uh, acquainted with to invest in such a project? And did you go about it in a, um, in a more concrete way? Like, did you put together a pitch deck? Did you do dinners for people? Mm -hmm. how, how did you go about meeting those people and obtaining uh, funding for the project? It was a sort of a combination of both. I think um, whilst I was still in London finishing up at uh, the River Cafe, Annie and Claire sort of started doing some um, uh, dinners. Um, they were quite strategic about, you know, who we were going to approach. We were kind of very adamant that we didn't want to um, sort of tap into friends and family. Um, and so we just started talking to people. Um, and, you know, we there was a deck and it was passed around. And um, But I think when you're very concrete about what it is and, you know, if you have your very solid business plan, um, it's just um, and the right people you ultimately find. And they, you know, when they have an understanding of what you want to do and if, uh, on paper it sounds like it's workable it's just a matter of kind of convincing them having said that I was pretty bad at it because I was kind of quite English about it so I was like I'm so sorry I don't suppose you want to invest in a and you know <laughs> if anyone said no I said oh gosh don't worry no I understand so by the end Annie and Claire were like you like shush we'll do the talking <laughs> you do more of the cooking yeah, we'll just, do more of the strong arming yeah of... I was terrible at asking for money it is a 
horribly awkward process to put yourself on the line like that and to because you have to be both humble and boastful at the yeah. exact same time there's a very fine line to walk to convince people that you have it all together uh how did uh the three of you settle on the space did the space come after funding or did you say this is the space like we need it and were you able to bring people past and say mm. like this is going to be the home of king restaurant we didn't have that luxury um and actually we were sort of still funding um gathering funds up until almost the last point but there was a slight change in location so originally we'd found a spot um in east broadway um, and for whatever reason, it fell through. Do you mean like by Chi- like Chinatown East yeah. Broadway? Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, so we had very much thought that that's where uh, King was going to uh, live, um, and then for, for whatever reason, it, it fell through. Um, fortunately, and then we found the current space, which is this beautiful corner spot in in Soho um, with sort of glass frontage. It's absolutely magic. Um, by well, actually, Annie was pretty dogmatic about sort of sniffing out the next available lease, and so she would go and sit at the bar. Um, it was called Mekong at the time, a real kind of um, neighbourhood loved spot um and sort of got talking to um the owner and he sort of let slip that his lease was due to due to um end so we went straight for the jugular went straight to the um uh landlord and and kind of put in an offer so it was it was kind of it didn't even go to market in the end so we were fortunate to find it the restaurant was designed by Claire's mom. Yep. Is that correct? So Jane Gowers. How collaborative of a process was it between the three primary owners, you, Claire, and Annie, and uh, and how much of your original vision was implemented by by Claire's mom, and how much was maybe changed along the way? I think we were fortunate because obviously Claire's mother had a very strong understanding of our aesthetic based on the fact that, you know, obviously Claire has a very strong understanding of, of, of our aesthetic and that was sort of very easy to translate between mother and daughter. Um, we were very kind of clear as to kind of what the, we wanted the space to to look like and resemble. You know, we wanted the space to be quite quiet, quite calm and pared back in terms of the design. Um, there's basically... Um, you know, the, the, the room is very, very kind of simple um, with um, very few things in it. And, and that was a that was a, um, a decision that that we wanted to um, that we wanted to make. And I think Claire's mother was very good at um, recognizing that and and being able to distill it into the space. So um, it was a collaborative effort. But Jane definitely took the brunt of the hard work and she was sort of racing around Manhattan trying to find kitchen tiles and um, light fixtures and salt and pepper pots. And I think, you know, all of those little elements that we do have in the restaurant, um, you know, add to the space. But we, we, we didn't want the space to detract from the food and the atmosphere. So um, I think I think it's beautiful. There's a, an infinite amount of decisions that go into opening up a restaurant aesthetics all the way across the board. Uh King has in its in its Soho location. It has white tablecloths. Uh, it has a very uh, pared back interior. Uh, both of you wear white chef coats. I'm curious if you would have been on East Broadway. Do you think all of those yeah. things would have carried over, or do you think that the neighborhood may have dictated a slight shift in some of the choices that you made? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know even um, the East Broadway spot. The restaurant was going to be called something else, um, and I. Th- Thing. I think the I think the design of it would have probably been, you know, similar. Um, but I think the location and the bones of the restaurant are so beautiful um, where we are. And I think we very, very much felt that there wasn't a lot that needed to be done to it. Um, the space in East Broadway was a bit more of a modern building. So I guess that that would have had an influence. But um, yeah, I, I often wonder that. I actually live very close to it and I drive past that spot every night on my way home from work. And I always think, gosh, wonder what that would have been. Maybe um, number two ends maybe number up two. in East Broadway. The uh, name sounds fortuitous it is on king street yeah. right so that has obvious uh elements of of the ability to just pull that and make the direct connection uh 
but did it just jump out at you and you said th- three women uh, leading a restaurant, let's name it King, or did that not play into it? I think actually we have to give credit to Claire's um, partner for that one. He he sort of put that into the option pot. Um, and I think what it represented was just um, the simplicity across the board. You know, we are on King Street. Um, we are called King. Um, I think we were very... Well, you know, we didn't want to sort of detract from anything else um, or even to Im- impose a suggestion of who we were trying to be. Um, and so I think King very much sort of, you know, I love how clean it is and how, you know, we are, we are what we are. We are who we are. Let's talk about that clean aesthetic and the, the clean flavors that end up on the plate. There is a tendency by uh, new restaurants to put 50 things on the plate. I wouldn't say that King subscribes to that, nor is it a restaurant from, I haven't eaten there, but from what I've seen, um, it doesn't seem like there is a lot of modernist technique that is ends up on the plate. Um, seems to be like a very soulful, classically cooked, prepared, plated restaurant. When it comes to dishes and conceptualization of those dishes, can you talk a little bit about your process along with Claire and how two, two co-chefs execute a vision uh, together when you might not always agree on everything? Yeah, I think the creative process is a very interesting one. Um, and I think, you know, first of all, we're coming from, you know, we've, we've both been trained in the same approach to cooking we both shared a love for restaurants whether it be in London or South France or Italy that kind of resemble that style of food so we're coming at the process from very similar backgrounds um, and very similar appreciation of of food in that particular style so you know we do write the menu every every day um, for the for the past like year and a half almost uh, we were both there thankfully that sort of changed a little bit in the last few months where we've had a few more members of our team join so we don't have to be there all day every day but so we we write the menu in the morning but I think we used to do it together um, and we thought about the menu in a very kind of in a 360s excuse me so we'd be thinking about you know what proteins do we have we work with very small farms so um we we get certain deliveries on certain days um we'd then go through and see what um produce had arrived that morning um and then you know it's a matter of sort of thinking about the menu um color and texture and and obviously flavor is very important as well but um i think we don't think about each dish we think about the menu itself. So there's only sort of seven things on the menu. Um, and whereas most, some chefs maybe would think about each component on each and every dish, we like to balance that throughout the menu. So not every dish is going to be, you know, sweet and salty and crunchy and creamy. and like. So all those elements we try and um, thread throughout the menu. Um, yeah. Is it, you, you touched on the menu being uh, quite short. Yeah. <laughs> and for... For many uh, restaurants, there's a there's a pressure from the diner to offer a style of ordering that sort of mirrors this. Not every menu, but it's like there has to be five starters, there has to be three salads, there has to be five entrees, and those entrees should be a chicken, a steak, a fish. Right? Your menu doesn't follow that no. that format at all. Um, do you? Was that a was that a pushback on that format, or did you just say we're going to cook what we want tonight? I think you know um, we w- definitely wanted to cook what we wanted to cook. Um, we 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 think about the diner a lot in terms of like how we present that on the menu. You know, if we um, we always like to have a fish on the menu, we like to have a red meat, and we also have um, you know maybe poultry. We we also try and think if we've got something that's a little bit more out there, like. You know, not every diner loves ox tongue, so we make sure that the pasta option is a little bit more approachable. Um, and so we do try and, um, you know, have that in our in our minds. Nothing gives me more joy than when I see a couple come in and they sit down at the table and they get given the menu and they look at it and then they turn it over <laughs> in hope that there's more. And and often we call them walk in, walk out. Sometimes they leave. And really? I, yeah. Wow. And, it, and I, you know, and I don't, I, I kind of love it. I'm like, great. You know, it's not, it's not for everyone um but i i do think more often than not uh, we, we manage to to provide for everyone 
there's a a tendency to when when someone opens up a restaurant to you have this enthusiasm that everyone may love it but also you want to prepare yourself for the worst speaking for myself right now not speaking for you although there tends to be this uh overarching just self-doubt uh your restaurant has received wonderful praise and and great feedback uh did that totally shock you or was there a part of you that's the ego said yep this this is what we expected I think it's a culmination of both. I think, you know, you have to have belief in in the fact that people are going to love it. Otherwise, the restaurant will fail. You know, you have to have absolutely, you know, um, 100% understanding, belief that what you're putting out there, people will respond to. Having said that, obviously, there's massive doubt. Um, the, the beauty of being a trio is that um, really, if I was to cook something and gave it to Claire and sort of said, what do you think of this? And she liked it and Annie liked it. I'd be like, well, that's enough. You know, there's a, there's a real safety in numbers. Um, but yeah, we were absolutely astounded by the way that we were um, kind of people responded to us. Um, you know, having said that, we, we kind of thought that people would. I think what we were trying to do was fill a space in the, the, the scene, the, the New York uh, restaurant scene, which wasn't, people hadn't started to think about food perhaps in the way that we were. And I think that we were lucky in the fact that people did want to eat in that way and want to have, you know, a small menu, but with very simple food, which is, you know, focused on deliciousness and, um, you know, lovely ingredients. Like I think that that was, people were craving that kind of eating. Um, and I think we just sort of hit at the right time. Um, and that wasn't, you know, the basis behind our decision to do the restaurant. I think it was just, um, it was, it was just good fortune that we, we were here at the right time. Which one felt better and maybe more surprising, uh, exhilarating the New York Times review or being chosen as one of the top 10 restaurants of the year they both happened in 2017 it was your first full calendar year being open I assume both of you were still there working all the time grinding it out Uh, how did it feel to have both of those things happen in in technically your first real year well, the review itself, we, we, we weren't certain that we would even be on, on his radar. Um, we hoped we would. Um, and, but he did actually arrive very soon after we opened, a matter of weeks. Oh, okay. Um, so in, in 2016? Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, he didn't come back for a very long time, which obviously says a lot about his first meal. Um, and then he later did come back. And I, I think, you know, we were very much, we understood the value of that review. Um, and we, you know, made a real effort both, you know, in the back of house and front of house with our staff to make sure that everyone understood the, you know, the importance of it. And we really kind of put a lot of energy into the potential return visit and what that would mean for our restaurant and our business. Um, and the re- review was absolutely magical. I think we all, the three of us, had sort of written a review, our dream review of, of what we'd hope he might say. And I think his review was actually a culmination of all of those. Um, so we were we were absolutely um, so grateful that there was that understanding of what we were trying to do. I think the roundup um, the, was absolutely took us completely by surprise we had absolutely no idea that it was going to happen um we were in obviously very good company um and i think you know what that did was really solidify um what had already been written about us and so um we were very very shocked about that and it couldn't really have come at a better time I saw this, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I saw this wonderful quote where basically you said that if you looked at a hundred menus, you would know what Claire would, would order off it, uh, which basically says that you have a lot of intuition about your partnership. Uh, that was cool to read because my brother is my partner and oh, I like to cool. play this game when we go out to restaurants where I try to guess before he orders what he's going to order. Yeah. Cause I think I know him so well, you know, do you get uh, it right all the time? I'd say I'm about 80% of the time. I do pretty well. Uh, but the flip side of that is that no matter how much time you spend with someone, you can never possibly know everything ab- no. about them. And being in a high pressure environment where you're both the chef and the owner uh, is, is just challenging on so many levels. I'm curious about what types of things have you found as being a co-chef and a co-owner that have been like a real learning curve for you? 
Um, in terms of as a partnership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you have to, well, the learning curve being that you're constantly learning from one another. That's a real joy. You know, um, you can walk into the restaurant one morning and think, oh gosh, this is what we should do with the rabbit today. And, you know, you've been thinking about it in the shower and then, you know, Claire will walk in and be like, I've had this great idea. How about we do it? And I'm like, great, love it. You know, so there's always that kind of exchange of, um, of on the creative level. I think what's challenging um, is, I don't know, the learning, I think that it's just a constant conversation. Um, there's not really ever a moment when we're not talking about something whether it be the plumbing issues or staffing issues or what we're going to do for a private event the following and I think what's um what's you know that that's the exchange of information is what is such a great learning curve because you're constantly um forced to think about not just your own approach to an issue or a problem um but you have the value of someone else's and that's a, that's something that's extremely kind of i think like one of the best things about working in a partnership do you find that with your brother yeah definitely i think that it's the the worst things that come out of it and the best things that come out of it is that you can say anything to each other yeah. and sometimes that creates a a wonderful dynamic where everything goes on the table and then sometimes when you say everything and put it out on the table there's no can, taking it back <laughs> it, can be, it can be a scary place to be uh going building on that on, on that sort of triple partnership that you have uh how much of the non-cooking side uh do you are you responsible for on a day-to-day -day? and do you have mentors that you all rely on to ask those questions that are directly related to owning a restaurant but not necessarily involve the kitchen at all you alluded to staffing and plumbing and the hundreds of other things that when i opened my place with my brother we were like oh taxes great yeah. oh uh profit and loss great you know there's all these things that keep you unfortunately out of the kitchen probably mm. at a computer or on the phone you don't think about those as much when you are thinking to yourself, oh, it's going to be so wonderful when we open and we put uh, X, Y, Z on the yeah. menu and everyone loves it. What What are some of the things that you have to do day to day uh, based on your role as co-owner? And secondly, do you rely on someone to bounce questions off of? Yeah, I mean, oh God, the list is endless. The things that yeah. you, I, you should be doing, but often I really shy away from I'm like terrible at I mean, it's just so hard to find the time to sit at a computer and to kind of like bash through those emails. Sometimes I've got a five-day response rate practically <laughs> on email. So, um, uh, but I think you know, there's everything from um, thinking about you know where the outdoor furniture is going to live and how we're going to get our vestibule for the you know when the cold weather comes. And oh gosh, the steam pipe is going to basically drop into the kitchen one day. And do we have the money to fix it? Um, should we open another restaurant? Can, you know where do we you know how should we think about our finances and do you think we should be you know saving more money for x and y you know all these things are very much um as you know you know part of restaurant life we're fortunate in the fact that there are three of us so we get to kind of bounce those ideas within within us as a group but we are also so fortunate to have been introduced to a real community of people here that within the industry and you know so to a certain extent outside of the the industry as a whole who have been so helpful with all those questions um they have opened up their contact books and sort of pointed us in the right direction. They've been a shoulder to cry on, literally at times. Um, and, you know, um, they've been extremely welcoming to us um, into the city and, and, and providing, you know, real support for all these questions. That, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. And sometimes we still don't. Um, we, have fought, we live opposite Charlie Bird and... and uh, so there are days when we're running in there saying, oh, gosh, we don't have any fryer oil. Can we borrow like seven gallons? And they're like, sure. Or the pasta machine's broken. Any chance we can? Um, and then we might talk to them about, you know, how did you think about opening restaurant two? You know, we're, we're, we're lucky in that um, people have been very supportive of us. It's wonderful to have that person or that place that you can bounce those ideas off of because as collaborative as the New York restaurant community is there is a certain extent where everyone says well like I've got my own stuff yeah. going on and you've got your own stuff going on and also many things just don't translate unfortunately mm. because the spaces are unique the menus the staffing is so unique um, as you look 
forward to 2019. Is there anything uh, concrete that you and the team intend to take on either internally at King or maybe overseas or, or another project that might be on the horizon that you can share? I, I wish I could. I mean, there's nothing concrete. Like, um, you know, we're, we're still in this phase, I think, you know, we're, we've just um, entering year three. So, um, and the last two years have been nothing but um, a graft. You know, the three of us have been there um, basically every day um, in that restaurant, as I'm sure you know, when you open a restaurant, you want to be and you have to be there all the time. We're now just coming to that point where um, it's not a requirement that all of us have to be there at any given time. So I think now that we have a little bit more space and our heads are a little bit more above, above the water, we're kind of beginning to think about what the future could look like i think we're all very very sure that we know we need to keep king um and keep growing king and you know enjoying our staff are happy and feeling that they're being you know that they're they're growing in their own careers so that's a real priority for us we've got um a sort of relatively new kitchen team joining so we're enjoying having the moment and the opportunity to really train and to teach our staff um so they're a kind of priority for us at home so to speak um and you know, we are now in this lovely opportunity where we can start considering what those other opportunities could look like. Um, but I can hand on heart, there's nothing concrete because we just haven't got round to, to finalizing anything. Chef, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing uh, your backstory and also uh, the last couple years at King. Uh, tell the listeners uh, where they can find you and what hours the restaurant is open. Uh, so we are on the corner of King Street and 6th Avenue and we are open for lunch and dinner Monday through Sunday. So come and say hi. Go find uh, Chef Jess Shadbolt there at her restaurant and you can always find more episodes of The Line on heritageradionetwork.org. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for new episodes here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.